Thomas Jefferson survives. So thought the ailing John Adams, confined to his sickbed in the bucolic town of Braintree, the very same town in which, some nine decades ago, he was born, and in which he'd soon be put to rest. And yet, despite all the accomplishments of his unexampled career, a life of gravity and virtue, austerity and candor, modesty and brilliance, private sacrifice and public service. He feared that the worst of his nightmares would soon come to pass. Much more than death itself, Adams dreaded the possibility of being forgotten. Such is the daunting prospect about which, as his allotment of days near their preordained number, and the life he so cherished, its expiry date, every man of genius is concerned. The question of whether or not his legacy will outlive him, of whether or not his existence will carry on in a higher realm in the minds of his countrymen and friends, agitates his calm and rattles his peace. About everything else, he bothers himself little. It is a form of vanity to that neither Adams nor anyone else would object. But it's a forgivable kind. It's unique to the best of our population, to the distinguished members of an exalted class, for whom immortality is still, in some ways, attainable. It was this menacing thought, therefore, by which, night after night, Adams's sleep was interrupted, and, come the rosy blush of morn, his wakeful hours were perturbed. He feared not the damp confines of the grave for which he was destined, nor the pallid corpse into which he'd sooner devolve. To his religious belief in a world higher than this, these earthy concerns mattered little. What he feared, though, was that his spirit, his impact, his contribution and his greatness would all be buried with him, as if he were a nameless Egyptian interred with his rusted trinkets. That they'd decay in proportion to the rotting of his flesh disquieted him to no end. 
they would be left behind or, God forbid, erased from the collective memory of a nation to whose genesis, as though a father, he'd contributed all his vital energy and force. And so, Adams's heart sank at the prospect of being neglected by posterity, of being thought of, if thought of at all, with the same sort of casual indifference with which one regards an anonymous tomb. Even with the ample endowment of his nine decades of life, Adams was unable to win the love of his fellow man. He was, as stated, brilliant beyond compare. Of this there can be no doubt. But are not fools more easily made into friends? Is not the company of the smiling simpleton preferable to that of the preaching erudite? Destined to be the latter, Adams was never going to be the type of man with whom others, always less intellectually gifted than he, would naturally get along. He held his opinions with the tenacity of a python. He encircled an idea and never let it go. When it came to his beliefs, he was eloquently unbending. He could stand athwart an opponent with the rigidity of a Massachusetts oak. And yet, unsurprisingly, this intransigence was not the kind of trait by which his stately colleagues in government were charmed. More often than not, his viewpoints were correct, but his opponents in the Congress were little assuaged by this fact. He was both honest and irascible, explosive and blunt, a dangerous combination in the society of men to whom decorum, flattery, and temperance were still the chief virtues. Of these many unendearing character traits upon which his famous wife, Abigail, proved incapable of exerting a mollifying influence, Adam was not unaware. Far was he from being numb to the peevishness and the harshness that grated his softer colleagues, to the sharp prickliness by which his refined associates were perhaps too easily wounded. He recognized in his erstwhile rival, Thomas Jefferson, all the appealing qualities of which he was so painfully bereft. Though Jefferson doubtless provoked the ire of countless detractors, most vocally that of James Thompson Callender, 
the scandal-mongering immigrant by whom his affair with Sally Hemings was first exposed. He was much more highly esteemed by the public at large. He was, after all, the inspired author of that sublime document, the Declaration of Independence. Of course, Adams was appointed to the remarkably talented committee for the drafting of the Declaration, at whose dignified lead uh, young Jefferson sat. In his subordinate role, which he voluntarily sought, Adams advised Jefferson and helped to produce the final version of that timeless piece of work. Adams knew it to be a palimpsest. Beneath the inarguable talent of Jefferson's mighty pen, the markings and contributions of greater thinkers like Hobbes, Montesquieu, Locke, Mason, and Lee were visibly etched. Yet, to Jefferson, the spoils and the glory went. For Adams, this was one of many sources of irritation. For this and other reasons, Thomas Jefferson would indeed survive, cradled in the bosom of eternity's girth while John Adams would dwindle and perish. Of course, in a literal sense, this was untrue. For, only a few hours before Adams's prophecy passed through his lips, Jefferson had breathed his last. In his palatial estate at Monticello, like a stoic seated in the lap of Epicurean excess, six hundred miles from humble Braintree, Jefferson died at the age of eighty-three. Adams, later that same evening, followed him to the grave. The father of John Quincy, the sixth and current occupant of the White House, succumbed to Anno Domini at the age of ninety. Both Adams and Jefferson died on the 4th of July, the year 1826, fifty long years after their collaboration on the Timeless Declaration. The following is my attempt to ensure that not only Jefferson, but Adams survives. With this goal in mind, I read to you an excerpt from Adams's remarkable and too often overlooked contribution to political philosophy, Discourses 
on Davila. His many other works, including his dissertation on canon and feudal law, his thoughts on government, and his assorted epistles and correspondences with such luminous figures as Roger Sherman, John Taylor, and the aforementioned Thomas Jefferson, will not only stimulate your mind, but inflame your love for this brilliant, yet unjustly neglected man. I hope that you enjoy. Discourses on Davila by John Adams Men, in their primitive conditions, however savage, were undoubtedly gregarious, and they continued to be social, not only in every stage of civilization, but in every possible situation in which they can be placed. As nature intended them for society, she has furnished them with passions, appetites, and propensities, as well as a variety of faculties, calculated both for their individual enjoyment and to render them useful to each other in their social connections. There is none among them more essential or remarkable than the passion for distinction, a desire to be observed, considered, esteemed, praised, beloved, and admired by his fellows, is one of the earliest as well as keenest dispositions discovered in the heart of man. If anyone should doubt the existence of this propensity, let him go and attentively observe the journeymen and apprentices in the first workshop, or the oarsmen in a cockboat, a family or a neighborhood, the inhabitants of a house or the crew of a ship, a school or a college, a city or a village, a savage or civilized people, a hospital or a church, the bar or the exchange, a camp or a court. Wherever men, women, or children are to be found, whether they be old or young, rich or poor, high or low, wise or foolish, ignorant or learned, every individual is seen to be strongly actuated by a desire to be seen, heard, talked of, approved and respected by the people about him and within his knowledge. A regard to the sentiments of mankind concerning him, and to their dispositions towards him, 
every man feels within himself. And if he has reflected and tried experiments, he has found that no exertion of his reason, no effort of his will, can wholly divest him of it. In proportion to our affection for the notice of others is our aversion to their neglect. The stronger the desire of the esteem of the public, the more powerful the aversion to their disapprobation, the more exalted the wish for admiration, the more invincible the abhorrence of contempt. Every man not only desires the consideration of others, but he frequently compares himself with others, his friends or his enemies, and in proportion as he exults when he perceives that he has more of it than they, he feels a keener affliction when he sees that one or more of them are more respected than himself. This passion, while it is simply a desire to excel another by fair industry in the search of truth, and the practice of virtue is properly called emulation. When it aims at power as a means of distinction, it is ambition. When it is a situation to suggest the sentiments of fear and apprehension that another, who is now inferior, will become superior. It is denominated jealousy. When it is in a state of mortification at the superiority of another and desires to bring him down to our level or to depress him below us, it is properly called envy. When it deceives a man into a belief of false professions of esteem or admiration, or into a false opinion of his importance in the judgment of the world, it is vanity. These observations alone would be sufficient to show that this propensity in all its branches is a principal source of the virtues and vices the happiness and misery of human life. And the history of mankind is little more than a simple narration of this operation. There is in human nature, it is true, simple benevolence or an affection for the good of others. But alone it is not a balance for the selfish affections. Nature then has kindly added to benevolence the desire of reputation in order to make us good members of society. 
Nature has sanctioned the law of self-preservation by rewards and by punishments. The rewards of selfish activity are life and health. The punishments of negligence and indolence are want, disease, and death. Each individual, it is true, should consider that nature has enjoined the same law on his neighbor, and therefore a respect for the authority of nature would oblige him to respect the rights of others as much as his own. But reasoning as abstruse, though as simple as this, would not occur to all men. The same nature, therefore, has imposed another law, that of promoting the good, as well as respecting the rights of mankind, and has sanctioned it by other rewards and punishments. The rewards in this case, in this life, are esteem and admiration of others. The punishments are neglect and contempt. Nor may any one imagine that these are not as real as the others. The desire of the esteem of others is as real a want of nature as hunger. And the neglect and contempt of the world as severe a pain as the gout or stone. It sooner and oftener produces despair and a detestation of existence. Of equal importance to individuals, to families, and to nations. It is a principal end of government to regulate this passion, which in its turn becomes a principal means of government. It is the only adequate instrument of order and subordination in society, and alone commands effectual obedience to laws, since without it neither human reason nor standing armies would ever produce that great effect. Every personal quality and every blessing of fortune is cherished in proportion to its capacity of gratifying this universal affection for the esteem, the sympathy, admiration, and congratulations of the public. Beauty in the face, elegance of figure, grace of attitude and motion, riches, honors, everything is weighed in the scale and desired, not so much for the pleasure they afford as the attention they command. As this is a point of great importance, it may be pardonable to expatiate a little upon these particulars. 
Why are the personal accomplishments of beauty, elegance, and grace held in such high estimation by mankind? Is it merely for the pleasure which is received from the sight of these attributes? By no means. The taste for such delicacies is not universal. In those who feel the most lively sense of them, it is but a slight sensation, and of shortest continuance. But those attractions command the notice and attention of the public. They draw the eyes of spectators. This is the charm that makes them irresistible. Is it for such fading perfections that a husband or a wife is chosen? Alas, it is well known that a very short familiarity totally destroys all sense and attention to such properties. And, on the contrary, a very little time and habit destroy all the aversion to ugliness and deformity when unattended with disease or ill temper. Yet beauty and address are courted and admired very often more than discretion, wit, sense, and many other accomplishments and virtues of infinitely more importance to the happiness of private life as well as to the utility and ornament of society. Is it for the momentous purpose of dancing and drawing, painting and music, riding or fencing that men or women are destined in this life or any other. Yet those who have the best means of education bestow more attention and expense on those than on more solid acquisitions. Why? Because they attract more forcibly the attention of the world and procure a better advancement in life. Notwithstanding all this, as soon as an establishment in life is made, they are found to have answered their end, are neglected, and laid aside. Is there anything in birth however illustrious or splendid, which should make a difference between one man and another. If, from a common ancestor, the whole human race is descended, they are all of the same family. How, then, can they distinguish families into the more or less ancient? What advantage is there in an illustration of a hundred or thousand years? Of what avail are all these histories, pedigrees, traditions? 
What foundation has the whole science of genealogy and heraldry? Are there differences in the breeds of men, as are in those of horses? If there are not, these sciences have no foundation in reason. In prejudice, they have a very solid one. All that philosophy can say is that there is a general presumption that a man has had some advantages of education if he is of a family of note. But this advantage must be derived from his father and mother chiefly, if not wholly. Of what importance is it, then, in this view, whether the family is twenty generations upon record, or only two? Why do men pursue riches? What is the end of avarice? Labor and anxiety, the enterprises and adventures that are voluntarily undertaken in pursuit of gain are out of all proportion to the utility, convenience, or pleasure of riches. A competence to satisfy the wants of nature food and clothes, a shelter from the seasons and the comforts of a family may be had for very little. The daily toil of the million and of millions of millions is adequate to a complete supply of these necessities and conveniences. With such accommodations thus obtained, the appetite is keener, the digestion more easy and perfect, and repose is more refreshing than among the most abundant superfluities and the rarest luxuries. For what reason, then, are any mortals averse to the situation of the farmer, mechanic, or laborer? Why do we tempt the seas and encompass the globe? Why do any men affront heaven and earth to accumulate wealth, which will forever be useless to them? Why do we make an ostentatious display of riches? Why should any man be proud of his purse, houses, lands, or gardens? Or, in better words, why should the rich man glory in his riches? The answer to all these questions is, because riches attract the attention, consideration, and congratulations of mankind. It is not because the rich have really more of ease or pleasure than the poor. Riches force the opinion on a man that he is the object of the congratulations of others, and he feels that they attract the complacence of the public. 
his senses all inform him, that his neighbors have a natural disposition to harmonize with all those pleasing emotions and agreeable sensations which the elegant accommodations around him are supposed to excite. His imagination expands, and his heart dilates at these charming illusions. His attachment to his possessions increases as fast as his desire to accumulate more. Not for the purposes of beneficence or utility, but from the desire of illustration. Why, on the other hand, would any man be ashamed to make known his poverty? Why should those who have been rich or educated in the houses of the rich entertain such an aversion or be agitated with such terror at the prospect of losing their property or of being reduced to live in a humbler table? in a meaner house, to walk instead of riding, or to ride without their accustomed equipage or retinue. Why do we hear of madness, melancholy, and suicides upon bankruptcy, loss of ships, or any other sudden fall from opulence to indigence or mediocrity? Ask your reason what disgrace there can be in poverty. What moral sentiment of approbation, praise, or honor can there be in a palace? What dishonor in a cottage? What glory in a coach? What shame in a wagon? Is not the sense of propriety and sense of merit as much connected with an empty purse as a full one? May not a man be as estimable, amiable, and respectable, attended by his faithful dog, as if preceded and followed by a train of horses and servants? All these questions may be very wise, and the stoical philosophy has her answers ready. But if you ask the same questions of nature, experience, and mankind, the answers will be directly opposite to those of Epictetus, namely, that there is more respectability in the eyes of the greater part of mankind, in the gaudy trappings of wealth, than there is in genius or learning wisdom, or virtue. The poor man's conscience is clear, yet he is ashamed. His character is irreproachable, yet he is neglected and despised. He feels himself out of the sight of others, groping in the dark, Mankind take no notice of him. He rambles and wanders unheeded. In the midst of a crowd, at church, in the market, 
at a play, at an execution, or coronation. He is in as much obscurity as he would be in a garret or a cellar. He is not disapproved, censured, or reproached. He is only not seen. This total inattention is to him mortifying, painful, and cruel. He suffers a misery from his consideration, which is sharpened by the consciousness that others have no fellow feeling with him in their distress. If you follow these persons, however, into their scenes of life, you will find that there is a kind of figure which the meanest of them all endeavors to make. A kind of little grandeur and respect which the most insignificant study and labor to procure in the small circle of the acquaintances. Not only the poorest mechanic, but the man who lives upon common charity, nay, the common beggars in the streets, and not only those who may be all innocent, but even those who have abandoned themselves to common infamy, as pirates, highwaymen, and common thieves, court a set of admirers, and plume themselves upon that superiority which they have or fancy they have over some others. There must be one, indeed, who is the last and lowest of the human species. But there is no risk in asserting that there is no one who believes and will acknowledge himself to be that man. To be wholly overlooked and to know it are intolerable. Instances of this are not uncommon. When a wretch could no longer attract the notice of a man, woman, or child, he must be respectable in the eyes of his dog. Who will love me then? was the pathetic reply of one who starved himself to feed his mastiff to a charitable passenger who advised him to kill or sell the animal. In this, who will love me then? There is a key to the human heart, to the history of human life and manners, and to the rise and fall of empires. To feel ourselves unheeded chills the most pleasing hope, damps the most fond desire, checks the most agreeable wish, disappoints the most ardent expectations of human nature. Is there in science and letters a reward for the labor they require? Scholars learn the dead languages of antiquity, as well as the living tongues of modern nations, those of the East, as well as the West. 
They puzzle themselves and others with metaphysics and mathematics. They renounce their pleasures and neglect their exercises and destroy their health. But for what? Is curiosity so strong? Is the pleasure that accompanies the pursuit and acquisition of knowledge so exquisite? If Crusoe, on his island, had the library of Alexandria, and a certainty that he should never again see the face of man, would he ever open a volume? Perhaps he might. But it is very probable he would read but little. A sense of duty, a love of truth, a desire to alleviate the anxieties of ignorance may, no doubt, have an influence on some minds. But the universal object and idol of men of letters is reputation. It is the notoriety, the celebration, which constitutes the charm that is to compensate the loss of appetite and sleep, and sometimes of riches and honors. The same ardent desire of the congratulations of others and our joys is the great incentive to the pursuit of honors. This might be exemplified in the career of civil and political life, that we may not be too tedious. Let us instance in military glory. Is it to be supposed that the regular standing armies of Europe engage in the service from pure motives of patriotism? Are their officers men of contemplation and devotion, who expect their reward in a future life? Is it from a sense of moral or religious duty that they risk their lives and reconcile themselves to wounds? Instances of all these kinds may be found. But if anyone supposes that all or the greater part of these heroes are actuated by such principles, he will only prove that he is unacquainted with them. Can their pay be considered as an adequate encouragement? This, which is no more than a very simple and moderate subsistence, would never be a temptation to renounce the chances of fortune in other pursuits, together with the pleasures of domestic life, and submit to this most difficult and dangerous employment. No, it is the consideration and the chances of laurels which they acquire by the service. The soldier compares himself with his fellows and contends for promotion to be a corporal. The corporals vie with each other to be sergeants. The sergeants will mount breeches to be ensigns. 
And thus, every man in an army is constantly aspiring to be something higher, as every citizen in the commonwealth is constantly struggling for a better rank, that he may draw the observation of more eyes. The great question will forever remain, who shall work? Our species cannot all be idle. Leisure for study must ever be the portion of a few. The number employed in government must forever be very small. Food, raiment, and habitations, the indispensable wants of all, are not to be obtained without the continual toil of ninety-nine in a hundred of mankind. As rest is rapture to the weary man, those who labor little will always be envied by those who labor much, though the latter, in reality, be probably the most enviable. With all the encouragements, public and private, which can ever be given to general education, and it is scarcely possible they should be too many or too great. The laboring part of the people can never be learned. The controversy between the rich and the poor, the laborious and the idle, the learned and the ignorant, distinctions as old as the creation and as extensive as the globe, distinctions which no art of policy, no degree of virtue or philosophy can ever wholly destroy, will continue, and rivalries will spring out of them. These parties will be represented in the legislature and must be balanced, or one will oppress the other. There will never, probably, be found any other mode of establishing such an equilibrium than that by constituting the representation of each independent branch of the legislature and an independent executive authority, such as that in our government, to be a third branch and a mediator or an arbitrator between them. Property must be secured, or liberty cannot exist. But if unlimited or unbalanced power of disposing property be put into the hands of those who have no property, France will find, as we have found, the lamb committed to the custody of the wolf. In such a case, all the pathetic exhortations and addresses of the National Assembly to the people to respect property will be regarded no more than the warbles of the songsters of the forest.
The great art of lawgiving consists in balancing the poor against the rich in the legislature, and in constituting the legislative a perfect balance against the executive power. At the same time that no individual or party can become its rival. The essence of a free government consists in an effectual control of rivalries. The executive and the legislative powers are natural rivals. And if each has not an effectual control over the other, the weaker will ever be the lamb in the paws of the wolf. The nation which will not adopt an equilibrium of power must adopt a despotism. There is no other alternative. Rivalries must be controlled, or they will throw all things into confusion. And there is nothing but despotism or a balance of power which can control them. Even in the simple monarchies, the nobility and the judicatures constitute a balance, though a very imperfect one, against the royalties. And with that, my friends, I leave you. Remember, as John Adams said, nothing animates man so much as a passion for distinction. May you let that passion burn, but not consume you in its flames.